0: cut off your sort of more aberrant statistics um, the data that you know that in situations where the fire truck is really slow to respond which is something that actually happens and is a worst case scenario right that that's where prevent. the stakes
1: are the highest
0: exactly like because you know there's 10 fires in a small radius and that all the fire companies are busy they basically just cut off all that data
1: it's What's the Point from five thirty eight. My name is Jody Avergan. And on today's show, Joe Flood is here to tell what I think is one of the most interesting stories in U.S. history. In the 1970s, huge swaths of New York City burned to the ground. At the time, the prevailing narrative was that these fires were started on purpose to collect insurance money. But Joe wrote a book a few years ago, which I loved, called The Fires, describing how it was really changes to the way the fire department responded to fires that allowed the blazes to consume whole blocks. It's a story that has all sorts of lessons for urban planning and data users and still resonates today. And Joe is here to tell it. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. So can I tell you a number? Sure. Okay, so the number is 41,710, which probably doesn't mean anything to you. But that is the number of people who were sent to the emergency room in 2012 with bite wounds.
2: Bite wounds. Bite wounds. That doesn't seem outrageous. Yeah? (laughs) If you find yourself in a wild situation, or people who are tempting people at the zoo, or tempting animals at the zoo, then...
1: I see. So, yeah, that's a good point. We need to dig into this. Maybe it's more than... I was just imagining, like, people got in a fight, someone bit someone else. But maybe it's these wild situations you're, you're, you're talking about. Possibly. 538's Haley Mungia is here to talk a little bit more about this number. And actually, Haley, when I spoke with that person on the street, her name is Crystal Rogers, by the way, and I hadn't actually even thought through that difference between animals versus humans or whatever. Mm-hmm. So where does this stat come from and, and what is that 41,000 bite wounds?
2: So this stat comes from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And um, basically, the number is the number of intentional bite wounds caused by assault that sent humans to the ER. But
1: bites by humans. Bites by humans, So 41,710 yeah. mm-hmm. human bites in one year. Mm-hmm. This is like a classic 538 moment of like, you say a number and then you have a reaction. You're like, oh, that's a lot. And then you're like, wait, no, maybe that's not a lot. And right. like, so can we put this in any sort of context?
2: Yeah. So that's actually, this comes from 2012 and that year that only made up 0.03% of overall ER visits. But what I found interesting was that it is 2% of ER visits that are caused by assault. So I don't know. So when I first heard the number, I thought it was kind of a lot. But then, you know, 2% of all assaults have bite wounds that send people to the ER. That kind of – it sounds about right to me.
1: And how does it compare to bite wounds from what she mentioned when Mm -hmm. the woman on the street I talked to mentioned and what Mm -hmm. most people would expect, like animals, dogs? right?
2: So – There are way more dog bites that send people to the ER. Um, The number there is... (laughs) It's nice knowing
1: that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) uh, It's
2: 339,566. Other animals, 86,791. Rats only sent 3,217 people to the ER.
1: So the other thing that I noticed in reading up on this is that the Washington Post, who compiled these stats and wrote a fun article about it, Mm -hmm. one way that they framed it was you are over 10 times as likely to get bitten by another person as by a rat.
2: Should we guard ourselves against human bites more than rat bites? Well, I mean, it's true that you're probably more likely to be bitten by another human than as a rat, but saying that it's over 10 times as likely or even like putting it in that context isn't really useful necessarily. (laughs) I think the the (laughs)
1: lesson is just be scared of everything.
2: Right, right. Exactly.
1: Haley, thank you very much. Thank you. Joe Flood is here in the 538 studio. So I read your book, The Fires, uh, a number of years ago when it came out, but it's just been like rattling around in my head as this great lesson about the way that cities use data and the way that humans and data interact and then the way that data and algorithms kind of have a real impact on – uh, real lives and so welcome to 538 and thanks for coming to tell this story
0: thanks for having me this is a if it were a sports talk radio i'd be a first time long time uh first time <laughs> caller long time listener. i guess first time guest.
1: and there uh, isn't long time for this podcast it isn't that long because we've only been around for a few months but yes
0: true i guess you and you're you're in the you're in the pod family of espn podcasts right. that i spent i think probably entirely too much time listening to right, and, uh, exactly uh
1: and this is gonna be fun for for me i think because we haven't on, on the show such as they haven't done like telling a story about the past and telling sort of using a historical narrative to, to talk about data. And this is just one of the most fascinating historical moments in data to, to me. So let's just go right there and take us to what mid 1970s Bronx, uh, New York and
0: the fires describe it. What's life like? So in New York city in the 1970s, um, You know, from 1970 to 1980, um, hundreds of thousands of people uh, get burned out of their homes. Um, You have, you know, South Bronx gets the worst of it and sort of most famously. uh, But Central Brooklyn, Harlem, Lower East Side, throughout throughout the city, uh, people are burned out. You have essentially these, you know, the comparisons were to Uh, various German cities after World War II, to really this sort of bombed out, burned out streetscape. You see these helicopter shots of just, you know, block after block after block of just nothing but rubble and ruin.
1: And there's this famous moment that you actually sort of debunk in the book that during the World Series, Mm -hmm. right, the Yankees were in the World Series in 1977, and a camera Hands from Yankee Stadium over to show a fire raging a few blocks away. Is yeah,
0: right? or I believe the left field uh, bleachers, you can uh-huh. see a, a big building on fire um, surrounded by I think I used got a little little purple in my prose in the book and described it as like amidst the kind of ruins you needed to hack through a Yucatan jungle right. to see um, and just burning, and just burn for a really long time. The firefighters didn't show up for you know a really long time, and it's just there for. And this is back. And this is the Dodgers and Yankees in 1977. We're still talking three channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's something like. It's like 50, 60 million viewers or something like that um, are tuned in to see this really crazy. I mean, just a thing you would not expect to see in America in general, never mind the largest, most dynamic, richest city in the world. Um, and the legend
1: is that Howard Cosell, who is calling the game, utters that famous phrase, the Bronx is
0: burning. Yeah, yeah. It allegedly says, you know, that, there it is, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the Bronx is burning. Um, and it's his perfect Cassellism. Uh, it's, you can just hear how he would have said sure. it. Uh, he never did. He never did. He never actually said it. Yeah, it was only right before my book came out, actually. It, it, it had been in the media for decades that he'd said this, you know, Washington Post stories, New York Times stories. It just was this sort of conventional wisdom piece. And then uh, right before my book came out, and we had a rush to make some last-second changes. There were these... Um, I got a hold of the Yankees and MLB released these old DVDs of the World Series. So I watched it. And sure enough, I watched the game and he never says it. <laughs> um, and I got some of his, uh Cassell, of course is deceased, but I got his uh, his broadcasting partners. I, t- I talked to the Keith Jackson, which is, you know, legendary, right. you know, especially college football. I kind of grew up listening to him. Got a phone call from him one day and I talked to him a little bit. And no one could remember him actually saying it. It's just kind of an Urban Legends before the days of YouTube. Right. Um, it sort of, you know, it, it encapsulated an era really well. It just wasn't actually said.
1: Just because that phrase wasn't uttered, it doesn't mean that that notion that the Bronx was burning wasn't true. I mean, you write in, in the book that seven different census tracts in the Bronx lost 97% of their buildings to fire and abandonment between 1970 and 1980, and then another 44 census tracts lost more than 50% of the buildings. That's like a stat that's really hard for me to get my head around, that 97% of buildings in a census tract would just burn.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, it, it's not that hard, I guess, if you look at those videos. You know, census tracts tend to be not huge in a, in a dense city like New York. You know, you know, 10, 20 square blocks, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, and so you have these areas where, you know, and you can you can see these videos. You can even just, you know, on YouTube, you can look up, like, South Bronx decay or whatever. And um, you'll see these, you know, kind of overhead helicopter shots of block after block just decimated. Um, and There's just nothing left. They used to talk about... Um, They used to uh, report from Engine Company 82. Is this Dennis Smith book about the busiest fire company in New York City and Mm -hmm. in the world at the time. And uh, in that same neighborhood was what they called Fort Apache, which became a a Paul Newman uh, movie. movie. Yeah. And uh, they used to talk about how it went from being that. There's some like sort of problematic racial issues regarding that name. But um, they they talked about how it went from being Fort Apache to um, Little House on the Prairie um, because there there was no more calls. This was like the busiest police police precinct in the city. There's nothing left. There were no people. Wow. um and it became this quiet almost sleepy place just surrounded by nothing
1: so let's talk about how this could have come to be so what was the dominant narrative at the time about why these fires were able to just rage.
0: Arson. And it's sort of a politically convenient narrative uh, for both sides of the aisle. Uh, You have uh, landlord arson uh, Mm -hmm. was one narrative, you know, where you have these buildings that are producing no revenue, but you can burn them and collect fire insurance money. Um, You also had stories of tenant arson, um, there were in the South Bronx and places throughout New York, you'd go into uh, sort of welfare and social service centers and it would say big signs that said you cannot you can only apply for public housing if you have been burnt out of your home. Um, they have signs in, in English and Spanish that said that. But that story of land. So, you know, if you're if you're a liberal, the landlord corporation arson thing sure. sounds good. If you're a conservative, you know, if you're against the welfare state, mm-hmm. that that sort of tenant arson story plays really well. Uh, in fact, arson was a problem. Certainly, by the late 1970s, it was an issue. Um, but throughout the up through the mid 1970s, arson never rises above one to two percent of the total fires in New York City. Uh, it's it's not significantly changed until the late 1970s. There's some underreporting issues there, um, but. Um, Really, what you're talking about is an initial wave of conventional fires um, that burn people out, and that then create this situation. And that's just accidents, just the way fires normally start. Yeah, it's a mix of things. You know, so you're talking about a decaying housing stock. Um, You're talking about neighborhoods that have been uh, redlined, um, which is a a sort of you know racial uh, banks and federal government. You know, basically, you know, created this sort of nasty scenario where you had you couldn't get loans if you were if you were not white in neighborhoods. You couldn't even if you were white, you. Get loans in neighborhoods that had significant non white populations, and so you create this decay cycle, and so. Landlords go from being landlords to slumlords. Uh, slumlords don't keep the boiler filled, right? So what it, what it results is people use their stove to heat, up, to heat an apartment. Um, when you are talk about poverty conditions, you're talking about a lot of people crammed into apartments. Um, you're talking about, in many cases, people with substance abuse issues who fell asleep. The leading cause of fire death in New York City was people falling asleep with cigarettes, um, you know, often drunk or high or something like that. In addition, you have this thing, and this is very much a focus of the book. uh, Just as this cycle is really kicking off in the late 1960s, uh, New York City very specifically decides to close dozens of fire companies. Um, So you have what in many cases would be a fire in a building that might, you know, the, the firefighters get there in three minutes and it burns one room in an apartment. Well, now they're getting there in six minutes and it takes out a whole floor. So this is really the crux of your book, which is
1: that you're sort of shifting the focus from the fact that there were a bunch of fires that started to really trying to analyze why the fires that started raged and why it was that we had this sort of epidemic. And let's talk about that. So you mentioned three versus six minutes in terms of response time. What led to that difference?
0: New York City had went off, had gone on this sort of quest to um, kind of rationalize governmental decision making. The idea was sort of that they built a model of the city, kind of almost like a very Sim City-ish mm-hmm. model of New York. Um, they'd done this in police and housing and, and and healthcare, but fire, the fire department was where they had the most traction. Um, it was the New York City Rand Corporation, which is a sort of an offshoot of the Santa Monica-based military think tank, and their idea was that they could model fires and from that they could figure out where to allocate resources
1: and the impetus for this was a, was budget concerns
0: to save it actually a significant it, amount of money initially started where there was they were not thinking about budget you know, governments are always looking to cut budgets. Initially it was done in a period of really largesse, you know, the late sixties is when this is happening, and it was it was it was more done out of a sort of utopian idea that we could take all these things that we learned in management science and operations research, largely from the military world, you know, that like Robert McNamara was doing in the Pentagon and mm-hmm. throughout the federal government at the time, things that we'd learned in corporations and we'd learned during World War Two, to transfer that sort of military technology into helping our cities. Uh, which, of course, are facing, you know, poverty and race riots and things like that. John Lindsay, the mayor at the time who initiated all of this, uh, this was really his major motivating impetus was to improve cities, to improve the way that, that you know, services were delivered um, and to do so in a way that rejected kind of the old corrupt, you know, kind of Tammany Hall model of things and did so rationally based on science and statistics. Um, and so the belief was that they could more efficiently allocate resources by understanding better, you know, where do fires happen? How do we figure out where to put a fire company so that you're sort of in the middle of the nexus of fires and so you can, uh, you know, respond more efficiently.
1: So they really did adopt the city like approach and describe it. They sat down, modeled the city, modeled where fires were happening and where firehouses were, and basically tried to create as much efficiency as possible in terms of response from a firehouse to a particular geographic area.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and so they essentially would, they'd run the model um, of, they'd they'd model out the fires occurring based on the current configuration of firehouses, and then they would move it around. So they'd close a firehouse and see if that affected the, the theoretical data and how quickly they responded to fires. Uh, they'd open a new house, they'd move them around, reshuffle them, and the idea was to come to a more sort of efficient mix. As a result, they had this, basically this, they, they kind of rank order all these different companies and they say, well, when we close this company, there's going to be a, you know, a, a two-second loss in or increase in uh, response time. This one, there was zero change in response time this one it was you know eight seconds here and there
1: i mean i'm almost imagining like a map with circles around
0: a firehouse of the
1: response time as long as there's enough overlap in those circles but not too much overlap so that we're efficient then we're happy with this model.
0: It's exactly right. You have a response radius, and then there is, you know, you want to maximize, like, you know, you've mentioned it's like red circles around it. You want to maximize, um, you know, the amount of area covered, but not stuff that's sort of double covered, you know, like where you have multiple multiple responders in that area. You want to spread things out a little bit. And the long and short of it is that they goofed the numbers um, and they came up with essentially almost the exact opposite results of what they should have gotten there 's a few key assumptions you know we talk about simcity, and i think it 's a valid uh, analogy, but this is a period of time this is we 're still like a decade away from pong being invented right this is, These computers cannot handle. Um, the things that we can now handle. There's almost
1: a disconnect between the faith in what the algorithm can do and what it actually could, could pull
0: off. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, they build this modeling system so they go out and they collect a bunch of data um, around response times. And so to do that, they go out and they literally give stopwatches uh, to lieutenants on fire rigs and they say, time your responses and then we'll just collect all the data and from that they'll build a model of how quickly we respond to fires. Um, they get all the data back and um, they find that, you know, and this this should have been a clue that something was up, but uh, they found that um, it didn't matter. Uh, according to the data, it doesn't matter where or when you respond to a fire. Fire trucks uh, and always move at the exact same speed. So whether you are in, um, you know, Flushing uh, or even a more, you know, sort of suburban area of Queens at 2 a.m., um, or if you're in Midtown Manhattan at 2 p.m., allegedly fire trucks move at the exact same speed. This is what they found, or this is what's true? This is what the data said. Okay. Um, so th- So... I have a host of questions
1: about that, about that math, because that means that they're not taking into account what traffic and density and well, time according to the
0: actual collected data, there was no discrepancy in the data they collected. So therefore, all of these factors, which would seem to inhibit the ability of a fire truck to move someplace, um, you know, namely traffic, um, allegedly didn't matter. They just couldn't find any evidence that that was significant. Now, the reason for that. Was uh, there were a number of them. One having to do with really bad sampling; they just didn't give out to a, to a reasonable sample of firehouses. The bigger issue, though, was actually uh, data manipulation. Um, a lot of a lot of companies, uh, you know, the stopwatch ended up under the back wheels of the truck, and they just made up times randomly. There were fire lieutenants, and I have talked to guys who did this. They talked about, I, like, you know, well, we were really proud of how good we were, so we we you know we dropped the times a little bit to look fast. You know, we wanted to. We were really proud of how fast we got out of the house. I mean, this is really reflect. the
1: perfect storm of all of. The- the things that can go wrong in terms of data collection. yeah Bad sample size, relying on human errors, and then kind of like an over faith in the numbers that you get back.
0: Yeah, it's exactly right. And even, you know, I talked to the, the, a lot of the researchers from Rand, and I, I said, you know, listen, I've talked to people who, they themselves, specifically manipulated data. Like, did were you not aware of these problems with, with, with the data set? And they said, oh, no, we knew that there was manipulation going on, but we corrected for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wouldn't go into the specifics of how they would how they did it. But what I imagine is that essentially they're doing like a Monte Carlo system, you know, which is random number generation. Uh, when humans fake data, we're far too random about how we fake it. Like if you ask a person to give a um, uh, 100 random numbers between 1 and 10, you could tell that a person did it because there would be very few runs. You wouldn't have a weird run of two, three, four, 3, right. which happens all the time in random number generation. Humans try to overly randomize them. Uh, and we do some other things when we do this. So it, it's sort of a nifty idea for how to eliminate that problem. The problem is, The way that you would end up in practice, what this would mean is that you would cut off your sort of more aberrant Um, statistics—the data that you know that situations where the fire truck was really slow to respond, um, which is something that actually happens and is a worst-case scenario. Right, that's where the
1: stakes are the highest.
0: Exactly. Like because you know there's ten fires in a in a you know in a a ten mile you know or whatever in a small radius, and all the fire companies are busy. They basically just cut off all that data. Um, as being, you know, as being like probably faked.
1: So, what they ended up with, uh, the Rand Corporation advising New York City and the fire department, was a kind of really clean and simple algorithm. And it was basically like this is how fast a fire truck gets to a fire across the board. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result, this is where we should place. Firehouses, and this, these are the firehouses that can be closed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's I mean, really essentially that what it boils
0: down to. Yeah, and there's, there's some more complications dealing with there's different types of neighborhoods commercial, industrial, you know, all these sorts of things. So, one, one of the other problems is they assumed that fire companies could always respond from their house to a fire. Um, so, perfect availability. As opposed
1: words. to they're at another fire and then they need to scramble and go from one exactly. location to another separate location.
0: Yep, and they modeled the first due company. So the first one that would show up, they didn't worry so much about who was the set, you know, because a lot of times that first due company, especially in a place like the South Bronx, where you're talking literally, you know, dozens of calls a day. Um, you know, like every 45 minutes, there's another call. And you miss a lot of them. And because, you know, you're at another fire. Mm-hmm. And so they have to bring in another company. There's, there's situations that happen where the enti- every single fire company in the Bronx was busy. Um, And then it kind of rolls from there. And then it gets combined with a real budget crisis Um, in New York City in 1974, 75. Essentially, it's on the verge of defaulting um, on its loans, Um, about $12 billion, billion in debt. The um, Famously, Gerald Ford. Um, Ford
1: to New York dropped dead. Yeah, that's exactly headline.
0: right. The, the Daily News headline, um, which he didn't say. That's no. a paraphrase. No one.
1: I think that's a lesson of this podcast. None of the famous phrases actually got uttered. But yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> he even had a more disturbing analogy where he compared New York City and its debt to a baby left on the doorstep at night, um, which in that analogy, Gerald Ford <laughs> oh. would be the guy who finds a baby on his doorstep and says, not my problem, right, Like exactly. closes the door, leaves it out there. But, um, Too many
1: words to fit on the cover of the Daily News. Though, yeah, I
0: don't exactly. <laughs> but uh, there were these enormous across-the-board cuts in city services. Um, in the case of the fire department, they occurred in a place that had already really cut itself to the bone, um, that had tried to do so out of a notion, out of, not of need necessarily, but of efficiency, that we could do this, we can save this money, so we will. Um, and so they'd already had massive budget cuts before. Uh, poorly targeted ones. And then the financial crisis just exacerbated the problem.
1: So give us a sense of the number of houses that got closed and in what neighborhoods and yeah. then we'll talk about the, the real life effect.
0: So closings and movings, it's about three dozen um, fire companies that got closed and moved. Um, almost all of them in places like the South Bronx and Harlem and central Brooklyn places with really high fire incidence rates. Um, there are about, just over 50 companies total that are moved. There's companies that aren't your conventional, fire truck um or 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 engine uh you know ladder engine companies there are auxiliary units that that provide extra gas masks there are some you know ones that do communications there are also these other side groups that get cut like you know the fire marshal program that does building inspections to try to prevent fires that investigates arson um all these ancillary things you know it kind of becomes this old this old abraham maslow quote about like if if all all you've got is a hammer the world becomes full of nails Mm -hmm. uh i think i'm Butchering the quote, but yeah, if you're um, holding
1: a hammer. Everything looks like a nail.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so in this world, like the only thing that mattered was engine company response time. So like providing fresh air tanks, it's not part of our equation. So we're we we do not factor it in. Um, you know, do we, having all the, all these auxiliary units that are really important. Companies that go around and make sure fire hydrants are actually working. Um, you know, or, or is that you know as as another duty of a company? They just stop doing a lot of this.
1: I know you explained a little bit of, about this, but it's a little hard for me to get my head around the fact that. It was the places where there were the most fires that had their fire companies cut. Why did no one just see that simple fact and
0: say something's up here? This is, And this is a very much a statistical thing. It's one thing to say that guy made a decision to close a firehouse. Um, it's another thing to say... Well, science said to close the firehouse.
1: You also point out that this modeling led to counterintuitive results, right? This notion of, oh, well, we can can close all these firehouses and we'll get away with it. And there's something seductive about the counterintuitive result that comes from – Data analysis. It really makes you feel like you're unlocking some sort of secret code. And it makes me wonder that if they had run the analysis and the analysis had said, oh, you know what, like poor people need government services and you should like flood lots of money into these neighborhoods that really need it, whether they would have ignored that result.
0: It's, I mean, you know, I I think probably they would have. Um, I mean, not entirely, you know, but you would have. This is another part of the book is that. You know, the politics almost always trumps the statistical... When they're at odds, mm-hmm. um, when they go hand in hand, it's great, and everybody's happy, and it, and it works really well. Um, when, they're, when they're at odds, though, you know, it's, it's very rare that they're going to defer to the – you know, you, you think about this with regards to, like, economics. And, you know, we've seen – you know, you, you see this a lot where when the economists say things that the, that the political wins like, economists become very relevant. You know, pa- Paul Krugman talks right. about policy entrepreneurs, you know, who, like, push different when, – when those run counter to uh, – when the economists run counter to what the political wisdom says – they don't get listened to all that much. Um, you know, and this happens in, in, in many different fields. And also, no one, you know, it costs money to do data analysis. No one wants to spend a bunch of money to bring in all these different consultants and people to do data analysis that says, yeah, everything you've been doing anecdotally... You're right on. Like, great. You know, like, right. just keep doing what you're doing. No one wants to pay for that. You want to pay for the counterintuitive results. You want to find out that, you know, that the the, the Oakland A's team, you know, was built on these, you know, this band of misfits. Like, that's how to really do it right. Um, no one wants to look at and, and find out that, like, the, you know, the same ways we've always been doing things, you know, works.
1: And you mentioned the outside consultants. I wonder if the consultants or the people running this analysis and offering this advice had been from... New York, or just from inside city government, whether this would have played out differently. A lot of them actually were New
0: Yorkers. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that came onto this program were originally from New York or had gone to college in New York. Um, you know, they've been in most of them had been in in Santa Monica um, working for Rand. A lot of them were not liking a lot of the military research that Rand was doing. I think that's one big thing of the book, too, is, you know, this is not some nefarious plot by people that hated the cities or, you know, anything like that. These people that genuinely, they didn't want to work on the war. Uh, They wanted to help, you know, the city that they loved that was falling on hard times. Um, So there was a degree of street knowledge, you know, that, that some of them brought to the equation, but... This is also a problem of like personality types. You know, you do hear, you hear these stories about how they, you know, they, they spent a couple nights in firehouses and did these sorts of things. And they're, the researchers are really proud of this. So they really felt like they'd gotten, you know, the street cred and the on the ground Mm -hmm. knowledge of how this works. And then you talk to guys in those fire companies and they'd start talking about, you know, in very stereotypical ways, the kid with the Coke bottle glasses who couldn't relate, you know, couldn't, he didn't understand a single joke anybody told. He didn't understand. And there is this idea that, you know, people who work in, Hard and fast binary data type scenarios It can be They're not necessarily the personality types That are good at sort of complicated Gray area anecdotal information gathering Um, And that did play out You know anybody There should have been smell tests Um, You know one of the main characters And he's an amazing figure And kind of a tragic figure John O'Hagan who was the fire chief And commissioner at the time And really oversaw these cuts He was probably the guy who should have said Wait a second Like this just doesn't seem right uh, but for a lot of complicated reasons, you know, he, he, he didn't quite until the very end. Um, and, but, he, you know, there, there, was, there wasn't this – it kind of points to it's also a failure of executive leadership. You know, I think that to some extent the head of a government group, governmental group, a company, whatever it is, you know, I'm, at least in, to my mind, one of the great things they can do is be taking a lot of different uh, information, a lot of different advice, and try to synthesize these things. And that includes the statistical and the anecdotal and different perspectives. And it, but it puts a lot of pressure on that person to make a wise decision. And this was a case where people weren't looking to make hard, wide deci- wise decisions. They were looking to outsource or abdicate some of the responsibility for hard decisions. Often when people don't want to make a hard decision, they
1: end up not making a decision. And that's a, that's a big problem, too. There's just paralysis. Uh, and in this case, I mean, what ended up happening was a pretty dramatic decision. But it was just sort of had the cover of this data analysis.
0: Had to cover the data analysis, and it also worked for, you know, the sort of, it's an, it seems like it's a seemingly irrational decision, right? Um, but all the rationales, all these, the, the micro incentives of the different groups involved worked. You have a city that is, um, you know, you have politically unpowerful people. Um, in these poor neighborhoods. And there's a statistical study that says all the poor people that really can't fight against these things, it turns out we don't need to give them as many services. So, so how much is race and class an issue here? It's a huge, huge factor. Um, I, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily the, the decisive one, but it, it, is, it is a huge, huge factor in all this. It is not coincidental that um, there were many fire companies that were closed and reopened shortly thereafter. Um, they tended to be in places like Green Point, uh, Park Slope, um, places that were middle class, largely white, not entirely, but largely, um, where you have people that are, you know, longtime members of the community who, you know, own buildings and are, you know, have like they have political sway and they vote and they get loud when they need to and they can call up their city council people versus these neighborhoods, which really are, you know, almost refugee status in a lot of these neighborhoods. You know, so this is a period of time where um, the old democratic machine model of politics in in New York and really any major city uh, really falls apart, Um, you know, traditionally, you know, Tammany hall and the democratic machines, they took in all the new, the poor newcomers, uh, famously Tammany hall did not do this with non-white newcomers. Um, you know, at this time, the city through the 1950s, 60s, 70s city has really serious, um, influx of black and Puerto Rican, uh, residents. And mm-hmm. Tammany hall does not incorporate them in the way that Jewish, Italian, Irish, et cetera, immigrants, um, or actually these, these are not immigrants. These are people from America, from the American South and Puerto Rico largely. But, um, just did not get incorporated into the system um so 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 these traditional sort of political power models had not had fallen apart in these neighborhoods and had not been built back up again um so you don't have these effective longtime civil servants you know and, and and city council members and people like that that can actually stand there and say what do you do you can't cut services in my neighborhood
1: but was the racial and class bias built into the algorithm that said we should close houses in these neighborhoods? Or was it just that when the algorithms made suggestions, that's when there weren't people to advocate for themselves?
0: It's a little bit of both. I think that, you know, to some extent, the the algorithms show a lack of understanding of the dynamics in these really dense and poor neighborhoods uh, of the actual, you know, what firefighting actually meant, mm-hmm. you know, what, what landlords and building inspections and all these things really meant in these neighborhoods versus in... Nice Manhattan neighborhoods where these people were living or had grown up and, you know, things like that. Uh, so that's part of it. But there were active, you know, there was a, a former um, one of the, the lead chiefs who ran the fire department statistical operations group uh, told me in an interview. He said, you know, yeah, when we'd get the recommendations on which firehouses to cut, um, you know, sometimes you'd get one and it would be down the block from where a judge lived or it would be, you know, in a, in a powerful city councilman's district. And we would just skip that one and move down the list. Um, you know, they, they actively, where they knew they were going to get pushback, they actively did not cut the, in, in those places. And so naturally it goes to places that are poor, less powerful, more disenfranchised. Um, I don't know that their motivations are necessarily racist, um, although it might be a factor, but certainly the, the effect is is racist because the, the neighborhoods that are, you know, poorer and, and less white get the short, you know, they, they're the ones that, that can't fight back and that get stuck with these things. Even when the statistics didn't say that they were the next ones on the list, they would get, it, it, would, it would fall on them.
1: We'll get back to Joe Flood in a minute and talk about some of the larger lessons from his reporting. But first, support for What's the Point comes from Dropbox for Business. Right now, as I do each week, I'm uploading a bit of extra audio from the show to Dropbox. It's a clip of Joe discussing just how much is at stake when it comes to how long
0: it takes to respond to a fire. There was, um, another situation. We got one later the next day. A fire crew in Harlem, they spot a fire and radio it in because they're out of their, they're out of their house and they, they, they call it in. Normally they would have responded, but they were busy. So a company from further away had to come in. That turns into a four, uh, a four alarm fire. And the- what's the margin
1: here? I mean, are we talking about minutes in terms of response?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's generally a question of there's there's been some studies of, of, of the difference between like, you know, what is, what is a minute of response time worth is a, a kind of famous fire, you know, study in the firefighting community.
1: So if you want to hear more of that exchange, I'm putting the audio on Dropbox for everyone to listen to. And while that's uploading, let me tell you about Dropbox for Business, which helps you work the way you want. It's got all the things you love about Dropbox. It's fast and secure with enterprise-grade security, and it comes with a full suite of administrative controls. You and your team can work together on any file type, on any device, simply and securely. You can control the level of sharing, too. You can set expiration dates, create passwords, and so forth. It's how file sharing should work. Over 100,000 businesses already use Dropbox for business, and yours should, too. Okay, that audio is already uploaded. I'm sharing it now, which is very easy to do. You can find the link to it on our website, 538.com slash podcast. Take a listen, and thanks again to Dropbox for Business. All right, back to the show. So let's bring this up to speed because uh, I know it's been a few years since you've written this book, but you've continued to be in the data world and think about urban policy and i mean obviously the echoes to today are still there so having had a little bit of time to mull this book and your work like what are the lingering lessons for you
0: i mean really what it comes down to is that there is a history of you know big data or whatever the term you want to call it is Um, you know you can go back to taylorism and scientific management during the teens you know this kind of like during this sort of you know 19 early 1900s industrialization era um, throughout the 1950s and 60s, it was this sort of Robert McNamara whiz kid school of organization research and management science. Um, you know, certainly automation and computerization throughout the 80s and 90s. And now we have this sort of big data era. Um, and the, the same kinds of mistakes get made over and over again. You know, it's a line about history doesn't repeat itself, but it usually rhymes. Um, and these same sorts of things happen over and over again. You know, I think that there's, um, you know, one... There's this uh, scalable solutions is a, is a word we hear a lot. Um, you know, when you think about what a scalable solution really means, it essentially means it's a way we don't have to think, right? That we can think once, come on, come upon a model that works, and then just... Multiply. <laughs> just multiply out, exactly. Um, you know, this is a big part of, In there's been a lot of really interesting coverage of the newer Public Schools and Mark Zuckerberg and Chris Christie and... Um, the, the big donation there. One of the things that really appealed to, to Zuckerberg and that, you know, Cory Booker had used as a selling point was that this will be a, an experimental, you know, laboratory. And then from this, we'll draw lessons that we can just implement across the nation. Um, and that's a big appeal. It's a big appeal in the tech world. It's, you know, we do a lot of, uh, you know, you talk to founders and stuff, scalables all about like, how do we scale this up? That's the venture capitalist buzzword. How do we, you know, grow this thing easily? Um, the problem with that is like places are idiosyncratic, uh, governments and regions and economic model, all these things are, are different from place to place. Um, and, and so you run into these problems and it's one of the great appeals of tech, you know, like we just have a definitive scientific answer. You know, the, 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 weight falls at the same rate of speed, um, as in America as it does in Antarctica or something like that. So it's all the same, but it's not physics. Right?
1: And, and there's also just... This is part of the sort of thrall of data, the thrall of the scalable solution. But this sort of fetish over data and the answers that it can provide, and it's, if anything, has emerged as a theme for this podcast. For me, it's been like noticing that that's where you start to get into trouble, where you just have too much faith in the algorithm, in the data, and you don't realize that all sorts of human biases come into play either as you're building that algorithm or as you're interpreting it. And one of the things I think your book teaches me and others is that like this is not a new problem, right? We think of it as a big data error problem, like maybe a post-Nate Silver problem or something. But it's really for the entire history of people trying to up their technocratic game, this has been the central issue. So I guess my question is like in the in the arc of the universe, <laughs> in the, in the arc of history, are we getting better at understanding the way that –
0: Algorithms and humans interact. I think you know it's a, it's a little bit like the technology problem, um, which is that you know when a new technology of any kind is introduced, you have periods of upheaval. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not surprising that like major depressions and major wars tend to track like a little bit after major technological changes uh, as we sort of adjust to this new world we live in and trying to figure out how we spread the wealth from it or you know how these different... Or don't spread the wealth. You know, these things work out. And I think it's similar. Anytime you have all this new innovation, you're going to have lags where you implement a new technology and before you fully understand the complications of it, you have these problems. So I think we are getting a lot better uh, in certain ways. You know, I think a, a great example of this is... Uh, um, you know, I, a friend of mine, I j- joked that uh, that Nate Silver kind of made frequentism a, a four letter word, um, you know, the, the Bayesian approach, which is a way to sort of like it's a little more like the known unknowns. It's a little it's a little more flexible. And you try to factor in imperfections in data, um, in, you know, imperfections and sort of like statistical validity um, and try to balance them out and be a little more roughly correct instead of precisely wrong. Right? You know, and so I think that, you know, we get at the high end of that practice, we often get better. The difficulty is the the absolute leading, most thoughtful, most progressive version of data analysis is not necessarily the one that's being implemented um, by all these big data companies um, or by, you know, a, by a, a project in some city. Uh, they're often quite simple and quite reductive. Um, these statistical, you know, the actual plans that, or the actual sort of models that get used. So um, while we are getting better at the one end, we're doing so much more of it that the potential for um, bad, bad versions of it you know gets quite high
1: what helps good algorithms get implemented in cities what does it take to get politicians to have a little bit more understanding about how to use data is it is it a data literacy question is it about hiring the right kind of people
0: yeah it, those, are, those are data literacy is definitely a huge part of it there's a great actually michael lewis who can say all these things a lot more concisely than me uh, he, who i interviewed him a few years ago uh, when
1: he's getting ten dollars a word i don't know how concisely he wants to say that
0: but <laughs> it's nevertheless the incentives <laughs> might be mixed yeah um, But uh, I was interviewing him around the time when The Big Short came out about the financial crisis, uh, which he sort of referred to as like Moneyball, like a nightmare version of Moneyball, where the the data went wrong. Um, And he had this great synopsis of it, and he talked about it initially through like his experience as a bond trader in the 1980s, um, was that, you know, whenever – Whenever statistics and computers and things like that first come into a field that hasn't been exposed to real serious statistical inquiry before, uh, there are these huge gains to be made. And he talked about Japanese convertible bonds when they first did initial like pricing models on them. They just No one had a way to value them, and then some people did, and those people made a killing. Um, the problem is what comes after. So initially, that's a case of using data as another factor for smart people to make hard decisions. And you balance it with all of these other factors that you have. Uh, the problem is that the statistics look so good and are so valuable at first, it starts becoming a case of, like you said, of fetishizing the data. So it stops becoming a way to think hard about complication or complicated situations, and it becomes a way to not think. And this is throughout the big short. You have all these people talking about, like, you know, just raising these red flags about, hey, all this real estate getting built, there's nothing indicating people should be able to pay more for this housing. There's no new jobs. There's no new influx of wealth. Why is there so much more housing and why is it so much more expensive? This shouldn't work. And people would say, ah, the value at risk model says it's fine. You know, it became a way to not think at all about these problems because the model says we can't lose that much money. And of course it all blew up. Um, it went wrong. And I I think that that's one of the key lessons is that, you know, data needs to be, it's not an easy way to avoid thinking. It, It needs to be another factor in, in difficult, complex thinking, but that's not scalable. Right That means like a lot of really smart people working really hard to try and more or less get it right. that's not like a really you know profitable sales pitch
1: right and making very incremental progress right incremental as is opposed a huge to coming up with a, a easy massive solution right? a paradigm right. shift
0: right you know these, these are the, the buzzwords that we have that are really big right now in business and in government are, don't really jive well with what I think is like probably a good way to do statistics which is like complicated and humble and you know incremental it's not a, it's not a billion dollar sales pitch it's not a thing that people you know are rallying cry for changing the world in a way you know it's, it's, a, it's kind of boring and slow
1: well we like boring and slow here at
0: 538 <laughs>
1: hopefully not this podcast though uh Joe Flood, thanks a lot for coming in. Thanks for having me, man. A real pleasure. Joe Flood's book is called The Fires. I highly recommend that you read it and read all his writing. And his podcast is Numbers and Narrative. We've posted an excerpt of it on our website and a link to show you how to subscribe. On the site, there's also a video of me and Joe chatting about his work. Check it out. 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Points editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Mantel. Sarah Patterson is our intern. We'll be looking for a new intern soon, so get in touch through the website if you or someone you know is interested. Joel Warner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avrigan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Track me down. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. You can find a link to download a file of the What's the Point theme song on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review while you're there. The more ratings we get, the better we do in the rankings, the higher we are in the rankings, the more people discover the show. That's the kind of algorithm we like. Thanks for listening. See you soon. What's the point, listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin.
2: I'm Kate Fagan.
1: I'm Neil Payne. And together, we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's
2: freaking awesome.
1: Okay, Neil. We Take Down Hot Takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and hear about the data and the stats and the analytics, that take them down subscribe in the itunes store search for hot takedown to find
0: us we'll talk to you then
1: do it